I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. Coming up, it is Thanksgiving week, so we talk about food, specifically the impact of livestock grazing and regenerative agriculture. Our guests are the authors of the book, Grass-Fed Beef for a Post-Pandemic World. And we offer a side serving of Belgian endive. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. On the science calendar, if you're looking for something special tonight, check out Boulder Audubon's 50th anniversary party. The party starts at 5 p.m. at Boulder's Unitarian Church on Pennsylvania Avenue. At tonight's Audubon party, you can help fundraise for the Teen Naturalist program by signing up for a walk with a naturalist. Everything from a behind-the-scenes tour of the Denver Museum of Science in January to bird-banding hummingbirds in July or banding saw-wet owls in September. Boulder Audubon's 50th anniversary party concludes with a talk by local naturalist Martin Ogle about birds, whales, algae, and Earth's living system, a seamless continuum. It all starts tonight at 5 p.m. Find out more at boulderaudubon.com. Let's start this next science news with some music that sounds a little bit like a heartbeat. Thanksgiving often features a main dish and plenty of pie, but have you considered including a side dish, say a pale green salad vegetable known as Belgian endive? A new study indicates that in mice prone to artery disease, eating Belgian endive improved the stability of arterial plaques. That may be important because in people, unstable plaques are a leading cause of heart attacks. Researchers in China conducted the study, published in the Journal of Nutrition. Colorado State University's Sarah Johnson is a professor of human nutrition. These researchers studied the impact of Brussels chicory, also referred to as Belgian endive. Johnson says the Chinese researchers have a track record for showing that eating high-fiber Belgian endive reduces problems in mice, such as artery stiffness and narrowing. They've shown in previous studies that this food can improve vasodilation. So the functioning of the artery is improved, but it's also reflective of potentially reductions in oxidative stress. In the new study, the Chinese researchers focused on whether eating Belgian endive would reduce the risk of plaques breaking off and triggering blood clots. Specifically, Johnson says they looked at whether eating Belgian endive made the cap of an arterial plaque more stable. Part of what can make it unstable is that that starts to thin out, the part that's kind of holding everything together and holding it in. So if it becomes too thin, that's where things can start to break off. So you want that to be thick and kind of keep it stable. The Chinese researchers did document that feeding Belgian endive to mice correlated with more stable plaques. And it didn't take a huge amount of Belgian endive to make this happen. For a human, it would have been the equivalent of just three and a half ounces of the vegetable. That's about one cup. Cholesterol-lowering drugs known as statins are also thought to provide much of their benefit by improving the stability of arterial plaques. However, consuming statins has more known side effects than are known to come from eating Belgian endive. CSU's Sarah Johnson says that if there could be more funding for human studies, we might determine whether eating Belgian endive might help people with heart disease. 
or how on earth, and happy Thanksgiving and healthy hearts. I'm Shelley Schlender. Cows get a bad rap these days, and not without cause. Force-fed on monoculture grain that relies heavily on fossil fuels, they emit significant amounts of greenhouse gas methane. Manure from the feedlots where they are finished pollute the groundwater, but it doesn't have to be that way. Our guests today, Lynn Pledger and Ridge Shin, have written about how regenerative grazing can replace corn-based feedlots, which are responsible for significant climate emissions, nitrogen pollution, and animal suffering. Grass-fed beef for a post-pandemic world outlines a hopeful path out of our broken food system via regional networks of regeneratively produced meat. You'll hear how this ancient method of animal husbandry can restore degraded farmland, increase biodiversity, combat climate change by reducing emissions, and sequestering carbon and produce nutrient-dense healthy meat for consumers. They speak with How on Earth's Beth Bennett. Welcome to the show, Ridge Shin and Lynn Pledger. I'm speaking today with the authors of a new book on regenerative grazing. It's called Grass-Fed Beef for a Post-Pandemic World. And in it, they go over some of the amazing complexities of what is known as regenerative grazing, but as they'll tell you, has a lot of different names. So Lynn, why don't we start with you and talk about some of the small scale aspects of this type of grazing, because like you say in the book, there's a whole ecosystem under the ground in the soil. Right, I, uh, that's one of the most fascinating aspects of it um, is, is the soil science. And you certainly don't need to be a soil scientist or a biochemist to uh, uh, do regenerative grazing on your farm or ranch, but but it is interesting to know about what's going on beneath the soil because the purpose of the practices of regenerative grazing are to foster the populations of microorganisms in the soil. Uh, so it's kind of nice to understand what's going on down there and what the relationship is between what you're doing above ground and what's happening below. So I, I think uh, maybe just to start, it would be good to, to discuss what what the relationship is to grazing and some of these fabulous um, outcomes that, that we uh, uh, note in the book, combating climate change and protecting against droughts and floods and increasing fertility. How, what does this all have to do with grazing? So let's just start early in the grazing season. Um, say when a cow takes a, a chomp of grass, plant is then partially defoliated, right? Uh, the plant sends a chemical signal to the roots to release some of the carbon that's been stored there. Uh, backing up, we all remember from school days, learning about photosynthesis and the fact that, the, that the, the plants draw the carbon from the air and, um, and store excess carbon in the roots. So when, when the plant, the grass plant or any pasture plant is, is partially defoliated by the by the cattle chomping, they send a plant send a chemical signal down to the roots to release some of that carbon that is stored there. In other words, these are sugary bits that are being released into the soil, and 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 those um, carbohydrates, carbon compounds, 
attract microorganisms. And there's many microorganisms involved, um, but uh, let's just focus on the, the um, uh, fungi and, and the associated bacteria with, because they kind of take the lead in this nutrient cycling. Um, and they, can I just interrupt for a second, Lynn? Yeah. I just wanna stress to the listeners how really remarkable this is that the plant is communicating with a whole host of, of organisms in the soil that are responding. It's a two-way street. And then that results in above ground diversity. So I just want to stress that to the listeners because- Oh, I, I think that's great. And, and related to that, I think people are beginning to be aware that this fabulous underground network uh, exists under forests. Uh, many people have read uh, Finding the Mother Tree or people are beginning to understand that. There have been uh, um, articles in the media about that, but they don't understand the, the something similar, the same type of thing exists under grasslands. So that's what, what we're talking about now. And so when these microorganisms come, the, the, the most amazing thing is the, the fungi, people name mycorrhizal fungi, meaning in, on, and around the plant roots, uh, develop these... Um, send out these uh, filaments called hyphae. They can reach far beyond the, the reach of the plant roots, yards into the soil. Two direction, bi-directional flow, two-way flow develops in these filaments. And what, what happens is the carbon is, is going one way um, and the, the microbes are using that carbon. They're, they're eating some of it, but they're storing some of it in the soil. And um, so that's how you get the big buildup over time, over, you know, not, not a long time, um, you know, a few years, you, you will see a remarkable difference in the soil. So, so the carbon is coming one way uh, from the plants and the exchange is, if you want to think of it as a trade, is that water and nutrients needed by the plant is coming the other way. In other words, the uh, microbes and the, these filaments are reaching far beyond the, the, the scope of the plant roots to get uh, needed nutrients and water that the plant couldn't reach otherwise. So it, the result of this uh, carbon nutrient exchange is really robust growth of the pasture plants to the extent that, um, you know, there's a great deal uh, of biomass uh, vegetation generated uh, pastures that are managed to, to foster this activity. And um, so uh, e even it's been documented 300% more productivity in these fields. It, so it's, this is what makes regenerative grazing important for feeding world populations, because if livestock are in integrated into cropping systems, the land can be much more productive and feed many more people. Yeah, yeah. I just want to interject um, a point that you could um, riff off on now that I hadn't realized until I read your book that in this kind of managed grazing, sometimes the animals are moved multiple times a day so that they just take a small amount off that new vegetation. Then they get moved to an adjacent um, paddock or acreage and then they, that first plant can regenerate. So it's always a, a constant regeneration process that you wouldn't see in intensively managed animals, i.e. that were just on the same piece of rangeland for days or weeks or months. 
Yeah, let me speak to that. I mean, the thing to remember about all of this, Lynn's really giving a good insight below the soil, which is you can't see it, but it's 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 what's happening. But the keystone species in this whole thing is the cow. So, you know, the cow has been vilified, but the cow is essential to make this whole system work. And the easiest way to wrap your head around it is to think of the buffalo. Everybody's heard of the buffalo, but there were 60 million buffalo and there was a prairie. So soils were deep, eight feet deep soils. Grass was tall, seven, eight feet tall. And that was created by the symbiosis of that large herbivore with the photosynthesis, with the whole soil food web that Lynn is describing. But you can imagine you have a huge herd of buffalo. You do have some wolves and stuff nipping at them that are holding them packed together. And you have all these animals. And just imagine the urine and the manure and the trampled grass. So there's nothing to eat. They have to move. That's how the natural system did it. And what we're trying to do, you've heard of biomimicry, but we're trying to mimic that motion with an electric fence. But it is incumbent on the producer to understand, you know, to your point, Beth, that the when, when you're trying to make cattle fat, they need to eat mainly energy out of the grass. And the energy, you know, the grass plant has energy, more energy in the top of the plant than the bottom. So the management task is actually to let the animal go through and eat maybe half the grass and then move them. And a lot of a lot of the conventional literature says that this is the rest period, but it's not the rest period. If you've left a bunch of grass, you've left the solar collector, photosynthesis starts immediately, and the soil food web is going like crazy down below. So it's a regenerative process rather than the rest. The only thing, you know, the cattle are out of there. But it but that's the you know, there are the species that makes it happen. And this is, it's interesting because you look at people who've tried regenerative things like uh, cover crops and that kind of thing, or composts and a lot of different methodologies to stimulate the soil in this whole system. But the research shows when you add cattle, it just goes, um, you know, almost vertically. Because you do have to remember that the cattle, the cow, their gut is a compost pile. So essentially they're a mobile microbial vat is what I say. And you as the, the, the person managing the cattle, you can decide where that gets dumped. You know, a feedlot all gets dumped in one place. It's a terrible, terrible problem, uh, but you can do it. And what happens is that helps inoculate this whole process. When you dump a shot of microbes on a piece of land, it, it, it's, um, it kickstarts it. It makes it go that much faster. And I think a related point that I also want to stress to listeners, because there seems to be some confusion about this, is that people don't really get that carbon flow that Lynn started talking about earlier. And that's really where the carbon sink is in terms of um, pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, is that transfer from the plants into the microorganisms. Whereas what you're talking about, Ridge, that carbon flow doesn't happen, but all that CO2 from the cattle's waste stays in the feedlot. No, it becomes a huge uh, nutrient loading problem. All these nutrients in one place is, um, you know, manure is valuable. You go buy a bag of it at the local uh, Agway, but if you have too much in one place, it's a, it's a human health problem. What people need to understand is you, if your soil is healthy and you have a robust populations of microbes, you do not need many inputs at all in your soil. You don't need to put 
you know, uh, put fertilizers on, you don't need to buy off farm products and put them on the, the, the microbes will generate this. And um, this is true of the nitrogen as well, um, that uh, the nitrogen and, and carbon um, kind of go together in that and um, activity of the microbes that can, can generate that. And people who are doing the regenerative grazing have found that they, they maybe the first year they cut their nitrogen fertilizer uh, by, a, you know, uh, a third, and then the next year, you know, it's half, and then eventually they eliminate the need for that input. And the reason that's so important is not just not just because it makes farming more profitable to not have to buy all that, but also um, it's because the the chemical uh, fertilizers, uh, the nitrogen, is a tremendous pollution problem. I mean, it's right up there, and it's now the fourth, you know. Uh, along with uh, the climate change and lack of biodiversity and deforestation, nitrogen pollution is right up there in seriousness. And uh, and and there's no need for it if, if we have- And one thing that you do in your book that I think people will love is that you include a lot of stories of real people, real ranchers, farmers, growers that are incorporating this method. And you show the results, namely that they have great healthy meat, and you know, good pasturage with none of the costs of these inputs. And, and another thing I want to bounce the ball back to you, Ridge, about is um, the quality of the meat. Because uh, the, again, there were so many things that were unknown to me before I went through your book. Um, like for instance, that much of the meat that you buy in the stores that's labeled grass-fed doesn't originate in the U.S. But when you when you have this grass-fed beef, and, and Ridge, you talk about actually doing some experiments with cattle. And I love it that you do the science and you do the experiments, but talk about what, what's called finishing and how that relates to the actual taste. Cause I think that's important to consumers too. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, in, the, in the conventional business, 97% of the cattle in the US are finished on a feedlot, which means the cattle were all raised on grass. But for the last three to four months, the cattle moved to a feedlot, which is a CAFO. There's a whole kind of bad things. We don't have enough time to even go into it. But they're stationary, and the, the nutrients are brought to them by truck. So corn. And, and in that finishing phase, when the cattle are getting fat, they need more energy. So that what happens is it's corn, some soy, but mainly corn that gets poured into these cattle, make them fat causes all kinds of health problems, which is why the antibiotics appear, acid resistant E. coli, et cetera, et cetera. So the concept that we are proposing is that the cattle get fat entirely on grass. So to do that, they still need energy, but the, and they need energy from the top of the plant. But what they have available in the field that they don't have available in the feedlot is all the phytonutrients all the extra things that are in grass that we don't even know. We're just beginning to measure all the compounds that are available that come into the meat, the cat, that grass-fed beef. The big challenge is getting the cattle fat. And a lot of grass-fed beef purveyors harvest the cattle when they're a certain weight or a certain age, but getting them fat <clears throat> means that you have to provide enough energy for their whatever type of animal they are to, to actually lay on the fat. And the fat you know, we've had this uh, vilified fat as well as cattle. The reality is 
They're essential fatty acids. And what our research has shown is that when you feed cattle corn, you get 10 omega-6 to 1 omega-3. When you feed them a grass-only diet and get them fat, you have 1.1 omega-6 to 1 omega-3. So perfect for human health. And you want the healthy fat. You don't want the inflammatory, you know, unbalanced inflammatory fat. I just want to make sure we get back to Beth's point, which I, I think was about imported meat. You touched on this, Ridge, but just to, just to recap what, what you said, uh, uh, you know, you may be getting in, in, the, in the big box stores, you'll see grass-fed beef and it'll say product of the USA. That only means that it's been processed or packaged in this country. It doesn't mean that the cattle were, were born and raised in this country. So uh, typically they may have been raised on grass. They may have not been had any grain, but what you, you but usually they haven't been raised regeneratively. So most people are interested in grass-fed beef because they, they have some awareness that it's it's better for the environment because of the way the animal was raised. So uh, so in Uruguay, for example, you're not seeing, uh, in, in, for the most part, you're not seeing um, uh, cattle that are managed in this rotation that, that Ridge described. Um, so if you don't have, and to, to have that, you need skilled people who know wh when to move the cattle. And this is something that, you know, farmer families can learn or uh, skilled grazing and pasture management is now kind of a new with the grass-fed becoming a new. Yeah, yeah, and, and you two are teaching people that, which I think is so phenomenal. And it seems like from my reading, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like we're gonna, in this country, we're gonna have to wait for passage of legislation that labels country of origin on the beef before we'll actually know if it was raised regeneratively in this country or not. For now, you really just have to know, you know, know where your beef is coming from to be sure. So you think that the best solution at this time is to know local ranchers that grow it locally? Oh, companies that aggregate from um, uh, good farms that so so there's a protocol where the quality and the, the grass finishing is assured. I see. Yeah. The, the, the exciting thing is that numerous large players in the industry are extremely excited about getting the real locally produced 100% grass-fed beef that is putting down carbon and fixing the water cycle. So big companies are now, um, you know, very actively involved in trying to stimulate this business. It's, it's hard because they need volume. And speaking to what Lynn was saying, in order to address the volume of truckloads of cattle every week going to harvest, you really have to aggregate the cattle from all these small farms. So in the U.S., the average size farm, cow-calf farm, has 20 to 40 head. A truckload of cattle is 38 head, a truckload of finished cattle. So you, you need to aggregate from a whole lot of farms to create a supply that is large enough to supply colleges and universities and that kind of thing. Right before COVID, we had that. We had a bunch of universities uh, set up. It all went away with COVID. They still are getting demand for grass-fed beef, but they've turned to the available supplies, which is Australia. So the, the, the pressure in the marketplace is there. It's, it, you have to get the grazers trained. You have to get a, a, some company to aggregate from a bunch of small farms and create the consistent quality in that ag aggregation process. It's not just a matter of taking cattle from a bunch of farms. They all got to be 
finished and fat and good and tasty and tender. It's a big job. <laughs> right. So can people go somewhere, you know, to your website, for instance, or is there are there sites that you can recommend where they could find that in their neck of the woods? Well, they could be in touch through the website for sure. Okay. You know, we, we, we have a we've uh, been at this for a while and there is a network of people around the country that are right. Doing, the right, doing the right thing. And we right. can refer people to somebody if they weren't in our region. Right. And that's that's a great thing about your book is that you present that network and that the fact that this has been going on for a while. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, um, but I will link to your website and to the book website. And um, yeah, best of luck with the book and your projects. And thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot for the opportunity. just heard Ridge, Shin, and Lynn Pledger talking about their book, Grass-Fed Beef for a Post-Pandemic World. They assembled information from the fields of ecology, climate science, nutrition, and animal welfare, along with on-the-farm stories from Ridge's travels as a consultant all over the United States and abroad. They walk their talk. In 2017, they opened Big Picture Beef, a company that partners with farmers across the Northeast to increase access to wholesale markets while promoting holistic grazing management techniques. The result? Increased health benefits for consumers, the environment, and livestock. We'll link to their book and other information on the How on Earth website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show is produced by yours truly, Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Steve Bailey. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.